Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to uh, SACPA. Uh, pleased to invite you here today for our speaker, Brian Otto. And we do this in conjunction with the University of Lethbridge, who do our advertising for us. And, of course, we're always pleased with Country Kitchens, who are able somehow to discern how many people are going to come here, and they can manage whether we have 30, whether we have 50, or whether we have 100. I don't know how they do it. I'm glad I'm not in the business. Um, I would would appreciate if you have any cell phones, if you would uh, turn those off. And if you're interested in a membership, memberships will be sold uh, outside the door. Without further ado, oh, one thing, I forgot, money, money, money. He's going to talk about the family farm that might disappear, but this organization will disappear. If you don't make a generous donation of 10, you can put in 20 if you want, but we require a donation of $10 for the meal in the room, and if someone at each table will cover the cost of the thing. Thank you. Today's speaker is uh, Brian Otto. He's a third-generation farmer uh, from uh, Warner. Uh, He runs a 4,000-acre farm there. He absolutely must be bright because, unlike Will Flanchuka and I, who were teachers, he took his teaching degree, and then he said, fooey with this, there's no money in this. He went into farming, and... uh, I'm going to uh, play him up by telling you he's one of the few farmers that never complains about money. He made his millions early, right after he left teaching. Uh, He's been a director and vice chair of the Alberta Barley Commission, uh, where he helped develop the commission's governance policy. He helped start and was an executive on the board of directors for the Alberta Winter Wheat Association. He's been with the uh, Safflower uh, Growers Association. He served on the Western Grains Research for 12 years. And in addition to that, he finds plenty of time to do uh, charity work. And I'm pleased to note that he's one of the founding directors of the Warner Girls Hockey School. That was a school that I was concerned years ago that I would have to uh, help close down. But I see that it's still vibrant and growing through community efforts like this. Brian is going to talk today on the traditional family farm, can it survive globalization and free trade? And he has plenty of material, so without any further ado, I'm going to call on Brian and he'll give us his presentation. Uh, Thank you. Just so everybody's aware, I don't think the family farm is being threatened. I think the family farm has a new definition, that's all. And uh, I know on on our farm, I'm third generation, and I have a young son that hasn't quite decided whether he wants to come back yet or not, so we'll we'll work through that. But anyway, um, so we're... uh, Worried about the family farm and the effect of what we, what a lot of us refer to as a cheap food policy, and 
and I'll state it right now. Um, as far as a cheap food policy goes, um, the consumer uh, may think it's a cheap food policy, but I would say that they are not going to have any choice in what the cost of food is because if you uh, look into the future, there's going to be a huge demand for food all over the world. And I think agriculture is sitting in a pretty... Uh, pretty good position because there's going to be more demand for what we're what we're doing as a lifestyle now. So without getting any further along, I'll it's F five, isn't it? No, it's already up, so just press the arrow. That's what I'm trying to do, it won't move. Can you press the There we go. Now, I may be a good farmer, but I'm really I'm techno technology challenged when it comes to computers. And I'll give full credit to this PowerPoint presentation. My wife's been working two nights on, on this for me, so I put it on paper. She puts it up there. Okay, this is a little bit of an outline what I what I propose to talk about today in my presentation. Is one is I've already mentioned a little bit about cheap food. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the family farm and how I think it's changed in our perception of a family farm. Uh, in my own experience, uh, I'm using my own experience on our farm to kind of make that analogy. Um, how our family farm is adapted to survive and some of the challenges that I see facing family farms and uh, some of the things that I think need to change if uh, going into the future. And then a, a a little bit about my own personal conclusions about uh, where we're at when the family farm uh, adapts. This is uh, what our farm looked like in uh, 1950s and 60s when my dad was farming. Uh, I was the hired man in those days. Started driving a tractor at the age of 13. Can you imagine what the uh, what would be said today if people found out your 13-year-old boy was out driving a tractor. But anyway, it was uh, we had a 1,900-acre a farm. We had uh, cows, three milk cows. My mother used to uh, bring a cream can of milk into, or a cream can of cream into Lethbridge Dairy. Um, we had 150 chickens, uh, gathered eggs. I remember cleaning out the chicken coop every Saturday. Hated that job. Yeah, we had pigs, and we were grain, and, and what I, when I say oilseed farm, we grew wheat and barley, uh, pearling barley, malt barley, uh, and when I say oilseeds, in, in those days it was flax. Um, it was a half-and-half half operation. Uh, we worked the heck out of the land, probably worked it four or five times a summer, seeded half of it, um, and our, our delivery point for the grain was into Warner, which was about uh, 13 miles away. So we go where we're at today. Uh, we've gone to uh, grains and oil, seeds and pulse crop, specialty seed farm. Um, we're up to 4,300 acres. Uh, of course, uh, like I said, we've diversifi diversified into other crops, yellow mustard, uh, have grown canola, but I find yellow mustard works better on our farm. Uh, pulse crops move in, uh, brought that into our rotation uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, still grow the wheat and the barley as part of the rotation, but we have a better uh, basket of crops to choose from to meet uh, uh, the cash flow needs on our farm. 
Uh, we're strict. We're right out of animals, unless you want to count my wife's horse. Um, and that costs way more than all the other animals that we used to have on the farm. Don't tell my wife I said that, Diane. <laughs> um, we've gone away from the working the ground. We're direct seeding, no-till. Um, and so uh, we've got it's more for uh, an environmental standpoint and also the health of the soil. Um, we now we deliver uh, a lot further away from the farm with the elevator consolidation. Some would say that's a hindrance to the farm. I don't see it that way. I think it had to happen. It's all about efficiencies in today's world if you're going to survive. So now we truck all the way to Lethbridge, Vulcan, or Calgary. I have trucked mustard all the way to Manitoba. So we're, we're moving a lot further afar when we deliver our, what we grow on our farms. And now we have what we call an integrated fertilizer program and a more targeted weed control program on the farm. And the, in, back in the 60s, it was 2,4-D. Now we've got uh, a, a much better uh, uh, selection of chemicals to choose from to control some of the, the uh, weed problems that we have on our farms. Um, when I talk about the perception of the family farm, that, that's what I want to, to bring to everybody's attention. We've moved. The family farm is, uh, is a nice lifestyle, as I said before, but we're much larger now. We're much more diversified. And what I like to say is they are million-dollar businesses. Uh, so we have to look at it from a business point of view, not from a, uh, what we call a farming point of view. And I, I like to refer to it as the changing landscape of agriculture. And one of the best examples that I can come up with is we hear a lot about Hutterite colonies in, in southern Alberta. And uh, there are some farmers that have a problem with it. I'm not one of those. I, I think that they're a, a really good example of uh, the when, when we, we want to refer to a farm as a business because they're diversified. They're larger. But they've gone back to where we've moved from. They've gone into mixed farming. They've got dairy. They've got cattle. They've got chickens, uh, plus their grain operation. And so when I say a family farm, I call that uh, a farm with families. It's still the same thing, just a different way of looking at the family farm. So we still have those like myself who are uh, private ownership. I'm a corporation. Uh, my wife and I are, th are the owners of that corporation, but Hutterite colonies are the same thing. You just have to look at it from a different point of view. So when we talk about cheap food policy, I'd like to always go back to the SM5, which is a supply-managed industry. And if you look at this chart, you'll see where Canadians are already paying more than what other countries are for some of the things that they buy across the counter. If you look at, um, and I got these figures from Buck Spencer. He phoned me yesterday because he just got back from the States and he was comparing prices. You could buy three chickens in the States for $15. Up here, we're paying $25 for the same thing. Four liters of milk, $2.69 in the States, $4.37 here. A dozen eggs, $0.99 cents when we pay $2.60. So it's just an indication. When we say cheap food policy, I'm not sure... We want to go there because uh, I think that uh, it's been uh, highly publicized that we, we have one, and I'm not sure that consumers are going to have a choice in the end uh, if you want to eat. Uh, 
and with the, where the supply of food is going in the world, things are going to change. Um, we also, you hear a lot of talk in the industry, uh, especially today with the increase in grain prices and how it's going to impact the price of food at the counter. And as a grain producer, I have a bit of a problem with that because when I take a look at a loaf of bread, you can make 67 loaves of bread out of one bushel of grain. Farmers have about 13 cents in that loaf of bread. So if my the price of my wheat, and we'll just take a look at spring wheat right now, goes up uh, $2 a bushel, how much is that going to impact the price on that loaf of bread? Not a lot. And for those beer drinkers that are sitting in the room, we have one cent. Our malt barley has one cent in that bottle of beer. So if the price of malt barley goes up $2, how much is that going to impact the, the price of, of, of the, what's in the bottle? What you're going to find is that the box that that cereal comes in is worth a lot more than what we've got inside that you're eating our share. So, um, yeah, that's a challenge for the industry. Um, we have to, with the increased cost, that's why we've got larger. We've become much more efficient, and I'll talk to the, a little bit about that here as we move on. What I look at is the grain farm, uh, uh, the grain farm business. That we're in a different industry than the supply management. Supply management controls the amount of product that they produce, and they control the price. And it's for the domestic industry. And the grain farms. We're, we target a different industry because we only sell about, this says 25%, we only sell about actually 20% of what we produce in Western Canada to our domestic industry. 80% of what we produce is targeted for export, targeted for the international, the global market. So when we look at foreign customers, when we talk about pricing, we have to remember that our commodity prices are all established or the prices we sell to our exchange, uh, our foreign customers are all based on, in canola, I'm looking at Winnipeg. That's where the canola futures is at. Uh, in Minneapolis for the spring wheats and Kansas City for the hard red springs and Chicago for the softs, or Kansas City for the winter wheats and the Chicago for the soft wheats. So when we want to look at who we're selling to, we have to be careful because some, some of our customers are willing to pay a premium, such as Japan, uh, they, they, but they want quality. We have to give them uh, a quality product when we sell it to them. Whereas when we're selling to China, they're very price sensitive and they're, they're not as much worried about quality as they're worried about access to supply and what the price is. So... Uh, we're in a world competitive market. We're in a global market, and some of our major customers, uh, competitors are Australia and U.S. and Europe. And when I take a look at Western Canada and you take a look at where we have to ship our product if we're going to export it, we have to get it across the Rocky Mountains out here to Vancouver or all the way east to Thunder Bay. You take a look at Australia, and I had the opportunity two and a half years ago to uh, visit a friend in Australia and, and help him combine his crop. And the amazing thing to me was loaded it in the truck and took it down to port. Didn't have to rail it anywhere. And they would load it in the truck from the combine straight to port, dump it in the pit. So they've got a freight advantage over us because I look at my trucking bill to get it just to the elevators about 12 bucks a ton. Theirs would be 12 bucks a ton to get it to port. But I've got about a $30, $35 freight charge to get my mine to Vancouver. 
So it's uh, we face some challenges. U.S. Uh, same thing. They've got their 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 barge system on the rivers, um, the Snake River, uh, the Columbia River system. They don't have to transport across the mountains. They've got a, a system set up. So when I look at Canada, we're at a freight disadvantage. So we, there's some those, those are some challenges that we have to face. So this is how can we stay competitive? Well, and my answer to that one is we have to be efficient producers. Um, we have to be we have to reduce our production costs. We have to be effective in our marketing. Um, we have to satisfy our customers' expectations. So every customer is demanding a different uh, quality of grain or a different type of grain. We have to make sure that we can supply that and make sure that that's what they what they ask for is what they get. Uh, we have to meet our de delivery commitments, and that's a challenge in Western Canada because right now uh, we're facing a, a delivery commitment that we can't meet with our Durham uh, just because of uh, transportation problems. Um, I fully believe that we have to expand our, our domestic processing capabilities. With the freight disadvantages we have, we can't afford to be shipping raw product to the coast. It makes more sense for us to process it closer to where we produce it and ship a processed product to our customers if we can get establish that market. Uh, when I say value chain development, I'm, I'm referring mainly to we have to find some way to make our transportation system work better for, for everybody involved in the industry, not just producers. It has to work better for the the uh, rail industry has to work better for the trucking industry, has to work better for the processing industry. And I'm a firm believer that farmers have to start developing business relationships. Uh, when I talk business, business relationships, I'm talking more about uh, those relationships we establish with our suppliers. A lot of farmers don't spend a lot of time on that. They should. Uh, when I buy fertilizer I, and when I, when I deliver grain to the elevator, I like to have a good relationship with the people that I work with. And it's worked out this year. There are a lot of farmers that haven't been able to deliver their grain yet because of transportation problems. And I maintain on my farm that hasn't been a big problem for us because my relationships that I've established in my farming career have gone a long ways to make, making it uh, uh, so that I can deliver to, to deliver my product. And also when I'm buying my, my inputs, uh, my relationships with those producer or with those companies that sell those, uh, they they phone me if they see there's going to be a price increase in fertilizer to let me know. So it's all a matter you try to keep informed, but there are certain things you can't, and it's those relationships with the people you deal with that will help you in making uh, better business decisions on your farms. I just wanted to. Uh, I did this presentation a few years ago at the Agronomy Association, but just to give you an indication where we're at as far as historical prices on grain. Now, I took 1976. I'd only been farming for two years at that time on my own and compared them to where the prices are at today. And you'll notice there hasn't been a lot of change. In fact, if you look at Durham, it's, it's not worth as much today as it was worth um, in 1976. But on the whole, they're all about the same. So when you take a look at inflation in Canada, you have to ask farmers, how have they been able to adapt? Well, we've got larger. And I'll address that situation here in a bit. 
What I like to do with this next slide is, and there's not a lot of people do this, and it's pretty simplistic, and there's could be some arguments one way or the other for it. But in 1976, I could buy a tractor for $38,000. That was a four-wheel drive. It wasn't as fancy as today's tractors. And it would take about 10,400 bushels of malt barley to pay for that tractor. Today, with a $220,000 tractor, and I'm being pretty, that's, that's not top of the line, but it's, it's a lot more money. That same tractor to do the same things that I'm doing today has cost us about 59,000 bushels of, of barley. Combine, the same thing. And, uh, it, you know, a $24,000 combine, and the reason I know that is I bought a brand new one in, in, uh, in 1976. That's what it cost me. About 5,500 bushels of, of Durham wheat. Today, for, this, for a combine, about not quite 80,000. So you, you can see that farmers' costs have gone up significantly. And again, that's a challenge for farmers and for the family farm. Just to give you an idea where we're at, um, I just looked back in my records. We paid about $0.08 cents a litre for diesel fuel in 1976. Uh, last year we were paying $0.70. Cents. Uh, fertilizer, and I go by the pound because then that's actual. Cost me about nineteen cents a pound for every pound of fertilizer I put in the ground in '76, and, and today it's about fifty-nine cents. And uh, phosphate fertilizer, the same thing. They've all gone up. What that's, you know, that's part of farming. So we all have to adapt. Land values. Um, in 1976, I bought a half section from my from my dad for one hundred and fifty dollars. That same land today. Is worth about thirteen hundred. If so, and that places a real strain on trying to expand your operation, because there's a lot of competition out there for land, and uh, it takes a pretty sharp pencil and a good business plan to be able to expand your operation at those prices. When you see the the price of grain hasn't changed a lot in in thirty thirty five years. So I, uh, what I do is, in my farm plan, every year I do a, what I call a variable and fixed cost analysis, and then I do a prediction for the new year. And I've already done that. Farm plan's done. Did it in January. But 1976, when I talk variable and fixed costs, that's your all your fertilizer fuel inputs, your machinery inputs, plus all your long-term investment in land and, 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 um, and machinery if you've got it over five years or ten years. So in 1976, just to, to produce some of these uh, crops, and this is an average price, cost me about 65 bucks an acre to pay my costs before I started making any profit. Last year, $135 an acre. You had to clear $135 an acre before you started making any money for your farm. So when I put it down to how many bushels of barley I'd have to produce or how many bushels, and that's malt barley, by the way, or how many bushels of Durham, or how many bushels of winter wheat, you'll notice that it's almost doubled. I'd have to, and so it, it takes 18 bushels in 1976 to pay my costs. Now it's 36 today. Durham, it was 15. Now it's 34 today. Winter wheat used to be 18 bushels. Now it's 36 bushels per acre. So it's a challenge for farmers. That's a, that's, our average production on our farms has not gone up that much. It has increased, I won't deny that, but I wouldn't, it, it certainly hasn't doubled. 
So how have we adapted? Well, we've gone to larger farms to reduce our production costs, and we've gone to larger equipment so we're more efficient and more timely when we're seeding and when we're harvesting. Uh, weather is a, is, a, is a major player on anybody's farm, so we've had to adapt, and, and the larger equipment, of course, leads to the increased costs. Uh, we've inter introduced fertilizer programs into our farms to increase our production, and as I talked before, we've diversified our crops. Um, we've gone to soil conservation, direct seeding, no tillage, uh, got away from the cultivation. And on our farms, we've become uh, a larger awareness of the environmental impact we have on the, on the, on the environment. Um, that more or less came hand-in-hand uh, hand with our move to direct seeding. Um, a lot of people say, well, it, it's an economic advantage. It certainly is, but it's also we did it for another reason. And I can remember 1988 watching the dust clouds on my farm as my land was blowing around. I thought, there's got to be something different. We, got, we can't afford this. And that's when we started moving in the direction of direct seeding and, and not working any ground. When I talk about contracting custom services, that mainly would be uh, on my farm. We do a little bit we, uh, if we have to do any swathing. And I don't do it very often. I'll contract that. But I'm mainly uh, referring to I contract all of my grain hauling. I don't do it myself. Um, a little story. I, my son is a heavy-duty mechanic at Summit Motors in Tabor. And I said to him one day, Carolyn and I were adding up what it costs for uh, trucking costs every year. And it was pretty substantial. So I said to Andrew, I said, Andrew, I'm thinking I should buy a truck and a trailer uh, start hauling my own grain. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Dad, I know what kind of truck you're going to buy. And he said, I work on them every day. Just hire somebody to haul it. It's cheaper. <laughs> so, and, and we, have to, we have to adapt to the changing world food demands. Um, a good example is, that, is the pulse crop industry in Canada. That was a, an adaptation started, took started to take place in the They've been 90s and is a huge industry in Western Canada now. Five minutes? i got a long ways to go here. <laughs> I want to get to the wheat board then. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about the where the wheat board, where I feel that they have to make changes if... if um, because they're, they're, I, I consider them an impediment to the family farm. Um, here we go. Single desk. They're an impediment on the, on the family farm when they impact cash flow, and cash flow is paramount on any operation in any business. doesn't matter whether it's farming or, or hardware business or uh, grain elevator. And just to show you, and I went through this in my election campaign last fall, uh, we're a huge Durham-growing district, and they, when I talked to Durham farmers, uh, they were in a real bind, and especially the younger farmers. Um, in 2008, the wheat board uh, uh, wasn't able to market all our, of our Durham, and we were forced to carry over 26% of our Durham production. And in 2009, they compounded that. We had to carry over another 48% of our Durham production. And when you talk to young farmers that have got bills to pay, it's pretty darn hard to pay your bill if you can't sell what you're growing. 
And yes, the price may not be perfect. It may not be what you were expecting. But when the banker's saying, when are you going to pay these bills? You don't have a choice. So delivery opportunity is is probably more paramount sometimes in price, depending on uh, where you stand financially. So in this scenario, they have a serious, serious impact on farming operations if you can't deliver and sell what you're growing. Um, last fall, um, when I traveled, we were talking to farmers. We had uh, the, the wheat board was demanding number one Durham. They had a market for it. They had ships, two ships sitting in Vancouver uh, waiting for Durham. had been there since September. And they were, they were asking farmers to uh, deliver their Durham. Except when they delivered it to the elevator with the initial prices where they were at, they were netting out a dollar forty-two in their pocket after they paid their expenses. And there's, and I'll get to that. I, I really feel the wheat board has to change how the farmers are paid through that system. This is another chart, and, and I, I did this yesterday, March twentieth, and this is based on the Canadian Wheat Board pros. And uh, the pro is a pool return outlook. That's what the wheat board expects to pay producers through their pool accounts. And when I compared it to the Golden Triangle, and there's a website you can go on to compare the pit prices. They change every day in the U.S. And the Golden Triangle would be Great Falls area. Um, the Canadian system is coming up short on malt barley, about 97 cents a bushel. We're coming up short 87 cents a bushel on our Durham and our winter wheat we're coming up a dollar 10 a bushel. That's pretty significant. And would farmers get that price? Well, I don't know whether they would or not, but they haven't got the opportunity to in in, in the system that we have right now. And I tell you right now that March 20th is down um $2.60 from where it was in in uh December because the price of Durham in in the U.S. system in December was $10.35. So it's backed off a little bit. But no matter how you look at it, price uh, farmers in the Canadian system never did get access to those higher prices under the system we're marketing under right now. So I just looked at my farm and... When I take a look at my production from last year, I had a 41 bushel average on Durham and a 71 bushel average on malt barley. If I could have sold even at those prices, I would have realized another $50,000 more in my cash flow. So when you take a look at any business and take $50,000 out of their cash flow, that's a pretty significant impact on your operation. And they will say that farmers don't have access to that, and I will I will question that on everywhere you turn. They'll say, well, they won't let you haul it down into the States. And I'm saying you wouldn't have to because those prices would arbitrage into the Canadian system if they were reflect if if they were allowed to. Um, guaranteed price contract for barley and, and this one came up last fall to Saudi Arabia. Uh, needed feed barley from Canada because of the drought in Russia and, and, and the Ukraine. Um, the Saudi Arabia price landed off FOB Saudi Arabia was about 298 bucks a ton. In Vancouver, they were uh, uh, should have been around $263 a ton. But when they tendered it back to the elevators in, in Western Canada, they were only offering 208 
There's $55 a ton missing somewhere, and it's not getting to producers. And that has a significant impact on our operations in order for us to make good business decisions or marketing decisions because we're not getting a, a true price, uh, world price signal. And you can't make decisions on your farm if you're not getting accurate price signals. One minute. Yeah. And we're not receiving world price. And effectively, the wheat board capped the inland price of barley because that world price was never reflected here at Lethbridge. Um, I will just skip that one, I think. Let's go here. Wheat Board has control over our operations. In 1998, the first elected board of directors, the operating costs of the Canadian Wheat Board were $40 million, or a little bit over, but around 40. In 2010, $80 million. That's out of their financial statement from last year. Our world share, market share of grain uh, is was, used to be 22%. That's how much of the world marketplace that we, we shared or we owned. We're down to 14%. We're paying twice as much for administration and we've lost market share. Somebody has to tell me where that's a good business decision. So I won't go there. I'm going to have to, I've got way more material. I knew I was going to be rushed, but um, where do I see some of the challenges, some of the other, uh, where I see the wheat board in, in, in impacting on farms? It impedes our ability to, to make decisions with good uh, transparent market signals, something that's not shaded or clouded by the wheat board's uh, pool returns or their pros. Uh, the Wheat Board has what I call questionable market signals. We can't depend on them. Uh, domestic prices are capped artificially by the Canadian Wheat Board, and they will deny that, but they can't. There's no way they can because I tracked that guaranteed price contract for barley last year, and they definitely did. And the inappropriate use of, of uh, producers' money, and that one I've, I'll, I will speak to. Um, a month and a half ago, the Wheat Board informed producers that they'd taken $65 million of their money out of their pool accounts to buy two lakers on the Great Lakes. Never consulted producers, just took it. Um, what the farmers don't understand in this is that, and, I, and I've... They do not own the Lakers. The Wheat Board, when I listened to Stuart Wells last week, Stuart said, when I asked him that question, he said, well, the Canadian Wheat Board and the farmers own these Lakers. I asked the Minister of Agriculture, Jerry Ritz, two weeks ago when we were in Ottawa, I said, if the Wheat Board wasn't there, who would own these Lakers? And he said, the government. The, loan, the producers do not have one share certificate that says they own these Lakers. So at the end of the day, when they retire... They're going to spend $1 a ton for the next four years to pay for these Lakers, not going to have anything to show for that $1 a ton other than the Wheat Board telling them that they have two Lakers. So it's a serious situation. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to just skip through here. Um, Consumer-driven safety concerns, we're, the consumers have to be aware that if they're going to ask for traceability, they're worried about food safety, there's a cost that comes with that. 
producers have slim margins now. If you try to impose more uh, regulations on them, uh, it's going to severely impact their ability to operate. Environmental responsibility. Every farmer that I know of and talk to today realize their environmental responsibility. Um, these are some of the things that we've done on our farm, and a lot of farms have done that. And uh, We all have an environmental farm plan, most of us now, that we operate under. The biggest challenge that I see to the family farm is attracting the next generation. And some of the things that I've talked about, and there are some of them I've, I haven't had a chance are going to have to have to be adjusted if we're going to get the younger generation in because uh, we have declining rural communities, which impacts the ability to offer an education to kids. And if you're a young family with kids, the the education is a very significant uh, uh, thing that they have to think about. Uh, the, getting labor on the farm, you can't do it all yourself. Getting reliable labor, everybody would like to work on the farm, but there aren't many that can take care of farm machinery. There's one thing farmers can't afford to do is be fixing things all the time. And But the one benefit that I do see for rural areas is the technology, the, the uh, computer age. Uh, definitely there are a lot of farm businesses uh, that could be run out of the house off of a computer. So in conclusion, where do I, conce- where do I see the family farm? I think it will evolve. Uh, they'll be much larger, but uh, they, and they'll look different, and but they'll still be a lifestyle, I guess, if you want to look at it. Right? I see the family farm becoming more specialized and more focused on value adding. Uh, I see them becoming more diversified. Um, the one thing I will say to the younger generation is that those that come back to it have got a real opportunity, in my opinion, because there aren't going to be enough of them to farm all the land that's out there. And yes, the Hutterite colonies are buying up a lot of it, but they're not going to be able to farm all of it. And I think the young people that come back into this industry have got, they're going to be uh, in a good position. And I talked about the population that's projected in 2050. There's going to be a, a real world demand for, for food. And they're going to be in the, in the, in the driver's seat. Uh, they will have to. There's an environmental awareness, and we're hearing that every day in the news. Uh, farmers are well aware of that. They've, and in fact, I would say, farmers are probably the first environmentalists that have really taken action to deal with the environment, and they've done it with their own pocketbook. A lot of the changes you see in agriculture today were done at the farmer's expense. They didn't ask for government help; they did it themselves. Um, at the end, I want to. All I will say is, are the consumers prepared to pay for the increased cost of food production? And I would say that the, it may not be the consumer's decision. I think it will be it will be driven by the by by other outside concerns or outside uh, influences. With that, I'm sorry I had way more, but no time. So, thank you very much.